Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Molly. And Cody. Please join us as we talk true crime. Over the fence. Dark Cast Network. The light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. We're going to jump right into it today. Last episode, we talked about Polly Nichols, the first canonical victim of the five canonical victims Mm -hmm. of Jack the Ripper. I like saying the word canonical. That's a very fancy word. I like saying it. And um, I say it quite a few times. I was actually writing something else today that's going to be for our Patreon Mm -hmm. members. And I had one sentence where I said the word canonical like four times. I was like, stop. Why does it make me feel like you're saying nautical? (laughs) I don't know. Does it have anything to do with? cruise ships or ports no (laughs) we already know we know nothing about that we know nothing about ships anna eliza smith was born in september of 1841 to george smith and ruth chapman george was a trooper in the british army as part of a cavalry regiment called the second lifeguards ruth had left her family home at 15 to go into london for work and was working as a domestic servant when she met george she became pregnant prior to being married to george and after having annie ended up living in a barrack nearby those that belonged to george's regiment the women that i don't want to say belonged to but i'm just were with the men that were in this regiment they were taken along at times and would perform duties for the cavalry union like laundry cooking other domestic tasks and they would travel around like in war type of thing? Well, they weren't in war, but they would, if they went from... Different posts they had to be at kind of yes, in a way? Yes, so yeah. they would take them mm-hmm. with them, okay. or they would just be there to just make sure all their daily tasks were done. I, I mean, it's kind of like today when people live on base, mm-hmm. if, you know what I mean? But just a different time. Right. <laughs> However, still unmarried, Ruth became pregnant by George again. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, prior to George being deployed to any other station other than London, he was able to marry Ruth on February 20th, 1842, and somehow was able to get the marriage certificate backdated to prior to their baby Annie being born. Oh. So why did it look bad if it wasn't? Well, yeah, I mean, I it's mean the 1800s. Didn't know, though? I mean, <laughs> for the way that it would have looked for him being in the lifeguards, it would look better if he would have had 
a wife with him at that time. So I think he had a nice commanding officer that mm-hmm. somehow allowed the backdating of the marriage certificate to happen prior right. to prior to their baby Annie's birth mm-hmm. and then the birth of their second child. However, the Smith family would be at the will of the regiment and what it could provide for the family. They did not have separate housing and lived amongst the remaining soldiers in the barracks. Not as bad as like the workhouses that we spoke about with Polly's situation, but the barrack life still left much to be desired, including sanitary living conditions. Mm-hmm. Wasn't very sanitary. I'm sure. However, this was a safe, consistent lifestyle. You know, you were going to have a bed to go home to. Whether or not it was the most sanitary was questionable, but you were safe with these soldiers and it was consistent. Eventually, families were given extra resources so that they could find private housing for themselves, more suitable for privacy and for raising a family. Ruth and George went on to have five more children after Annie. One benefit that I haven't mentioned about Army life, the children are able to attend school. Mm. So similar to Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman would receive a more extensive education than those in the lower classes. In 1854, scarlet fever hit London and its surrounding areas. The Smith family had similar living arrangements as Polly's family in that they shared a single home with multiple families. This was a haven for infectious disease to flourish. First, Annie's little sister Miriam was taken by this illness, then her little brother William five days later, and seven days after William's death, her other little brother Eli died. Jeez. Then Annie's brother, who was closest to her age, contracted typhus and died three weeks later. Oh my god! So we're talking about within the course of like five weeks, like they've lost four children. Out of six. Yeah. That's yeah, like, they've, yeah. basically they've lost almost all their children. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. So that's just how quickly disease moved and how quickly almost an entire family could be affected. I wonder if that's like, I'm just thinking out loud, is this why people had so many children? Because like so many children died too. You know what I mean? It seems like, I mean. That and the lack of contraception. Mm, Um, I had looked up some contraception methods and mind you, we're not with the elite class. No, of course not. We're right now we're in a military family. Mm -hmm. So it would be similar to the working class. Right. But there's still a lack of contraception. A, it wasn't modern time. So they mm-hmm. the stuff that they did have even for the upper echelon wasn't, probably wasn't the best. great. Yeah. And I, the one most interesting thing that I wanted to, to reference here, and I don't know how accurate this is, but one thing that was so entertaining that I came across was that those that really had no other means of contraception would sometimes put a lemon in. Mm. A I guess there's something about the acid killing Sounds the sperm. Very uncomfortable. Terribly so. How would you get it out? I don't know. We're not getting into that. <laughs> anyway, so the the children was, yes, a lot of them passed and mm-hmm. the lack of contraception. Right. Two years after tragedy had struck the Smith house, George and Ruth went on to have two more children. Oh. At the point that the family had started to fill up their home again with children, Annie was nearing her 15th birthday. This would be the age that young women of her socioeconomic class were expected to earn an income either for themselves or to contribute to the family. In 1861, Annie held a job as a housemaid for William Henry Luer, who lived with just him and his bachelor brother. So they kept her busy, but it wasn't a full household. It was just mm-hmm. two bachelors. Yeah, bachelor pad. Easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the same time that Annie was finding her own place in the world and enjoying her new housing accommodations, her father was actually changing gears out of the military as this was happening. He became a valet for a captain of the army, basically a personal assistant who would help with all matters for the commanding officer. And this happened often if you were in a a military regiment and you had a commanding officer that took a liking to you. Sometimes they'd take you along when they went went on and Mm -hmm. lived their commanding officer life and you got to be their assistant. And her father would officially leave the army regiment that he was a part of in 1863. 
and in 1863, he was attending a sporting event with the captain he was working for at that time. On the day after their arrival at this event, Annie's father, George, was found dead in his room by apparent suicide. Oh. His throat was cut, and he had a razor laying beside him. Oh. The coroner deemed the cause of death to be suicide, caused by temporary insanity. But they also related it to his heavy drinking, which he had started to partake in more since he had left his regiment. The reason that this is important to talk about is how it affected the Smith family. Not only is it detrimental to them emotionally, but remember, George had served over 20 years in the Second Lifeguards and would be entitled to a pension, but only so long as he was alive. They didn't allot the pension to the widow or the family if the trooper were to pass. Well, that's messed up. Mm -hmm. So going from a steady, more than adequate income to nothing. To nothing. Wow. Annie had to send her money home that she was making as the housemaid to assist her mother and younger siblings. And this is what temporarily happened to assist with supporting her mother until Annie eventually returned home to live with her family and help from there. Mm -hmm. They had a nice middle class home that was affordable, but it would be necessary to take on odd jobs or to take in a tenant in order to maintain that home. Right. This is exactly what happened when John Chapman, same last name, no familiar relationship with her mom. Her mom's maiden name is Chapman, but John Chapman came to live there, no relationship. He moved into their family as a tenant. And in 1869, Annie, who was in her mid-20s at this time, would be married to him and then would further be able to assist with the economic survival of the family. Mm. They now had a man to support them, which right. unfortunately during this era, as we went through last time, you need it. Yeah. John Chapman was a coachman, so he was at a higher level of the working class, just as Annie had grown up with her father as a trooper. So still working class, but a little higher level. In 1870, Annie and John had their first child, Emily Ruth, and in 1873 had another daughter, Annie Georgina. The second daughter I've mentioned, Annie Georgina, was not the second born. In 1872, Annie had delivered another baby girl, Ellen, who had only lived one day. Mm. And then in 1876, another baby, Georgina, was born and was only alive for about 10 days. Then in 1877, Annie and John would have their first little boy, George Henry, who died just 11 weeks after birth. Jeez. Then in 1879, another little girl was born, Miriam, and she lived for only 10 weeks. Then in 1880, Annie gave birth to their last of their children, John Alfred, and he was born paralyzed. Oh my gosh. In 1879, the Chapman family went to live on the grounds of the man for which John worked as a coachman and also managed his stables. This is a very wealthy man in Berkshire County, and they had access to the land on the grounds, as well as a good-sized home with a sitting area, which was like unheard of at the time to have a sitting area. Not only did you have a room, but you also have a sitting area. It was like Mm -hmm. they were living the dream. And plus, they could go around on his grounds. Right. They would be able to provide quality educations for their daughters as well with the income that they had and where they were living. They even had their own domestic help, including a day maid and a charwoman. Wow. However, as we know, alcoholism can be hereditary, and it seemed like this was a, not a lost concept in that area. Around this time, in a letter from one of Annie's younger sisters to a local newspaper, it was stated that her older sister tried to keep the pledge to abstain from alcohol. So let me explain this a little bit. There were, what are they called? Teetotalers, right? The ones that were abstaining from alcohol. It was big at this time to promote it through like newspaper, almost as a way to give your testimony almost on why you're abstaining from alcohol. Okay. So basically there was a letter that one of Annie's sisters wrote to a local newspaper stating that her older sister, and I obviously they didn't say like, my older sister, Annie Chapman is an alcoholic. My older sister tried to keep the pledge to abstain from alcohol on account of what happened to our father but that Annie had the same curse, quote unquote, uh, that her father okay. did. 
Although we understand it beyond being a curse at this point, it was still viewed this way at the time. So right. they got that it was hereditary. Right. But they just viewed it as, you know, curse. A curse, yeah. In, in discussing Annie's alcoholism, I first assumed that maybe it was she saw all these higher class parties going on and what they were up to. Mm -hmm. And then also because they had disposable income, she had money for alcohol aside from she had time on her hands because she had a day maid and a char woman. So she had idle time. Um, What's a char woman. So a char woman is basically like a maid, but they don't live in the house. They're a part time worker that comes in and cleans. Okay. Got it. Maid probably does all like the fancier things. Like not maybe all the cleaning, but maybe like cooking, laundry. Mm -hmm. And the char woman just comes in and cleans. It's basically on the totem pole of domestic servant would Mm -hmm. be at the the bottom of the rung. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I got it. So my assumption that she would be drinking to fill the void would be partially wrong. Mm-hmm. Alcohol was used for a variety of maladies in the 19th century, true, including sleeping, headaches, and coughs. Yeah, it was easy to become dependent on this cure-all without even knowing it was becoming a problem. In addition, when she was acting as a domestic servant, she would have only gotten one day off a month. This is prior to marrying John Chapman. Mm-hmm. And that, because she couldn't go home on that one day off, she probably went to a local pub to congregate with other workers that were off the same day. Right. So she may have started that way with like a sense of camaraderie and gotten a taste for it and then started using it for like, oh, I have a headache. Oh, I have this. And then all of a sudden you're dependent on it. Whatever the way she came to consume alcohol or to fall into her addiction, she Mm -hmm. did. And this would greatly affect her family life. As I went through briefly, Annie had delivered seven children that Mm -hmm. are recorded, five of which had passed. And the oldest of her children suffered from seizures. And then one of her children that we can now recognize because there is a picture of her family Mm -hmm. uh, suffered from the effects of fetal alcohol syndrome. Mm -hmm. And their youngest child suffered from paralysis. Got it. So it's highly likely that that happened because she She was was an alcoholic and drinking during pregnancy. They didn't really know that was a problem to do when you're pregnant at Mm -hmm. that time. Yes. At the end of 1882, with three children, one suffering from seizures and one with fetal alcohol syndrome, which can also come with developmental delays, Mm -hmm. and an infant suffering from paralysis, we see that Annie may already not be in a good place at this point. You know, she's gone through this. This is the living situation at home that she's, unbeknownst to her, created herself, Mm -hmm. which at some point they feel that John and her may have had an idea that maybe it's because you drink that this is going on. Um, but of course, we, they didn't know that at the time, mm-hmm. but I think that they had an inkling of what was going on. Yeah. But she was also a familiar face to local police due to her frequent meandering intoxicated through the local roads. Oh, that's bad. And at the end of this year, 1882, her eldest child, Emily, comes down with meningitis, which can be a deadly illness, but displays itself similar to scarlet fever. And I know we have gone through a lot of births and deaths already in Annie's life. But remember, Scarlet Fever had hit her family hard growing up. It had taken three of her siblings. Mm -hmm. And then her other brother died of typhus at around that same time. So seeing these similar symptoms in her own daughter, Mm -hmm. one of the surviving children, it sent her over the edge. And she had one old coping mechanism that would rear its ugly head. Annie was so consumed with her own dependency that she wasn't even at Emily's bedside when she passed away. And just a couple of weeks after burying their eldest daughter, Annie went to the Spellthorne Sanatorium. Now, per the website titled Lost Hospitals of London, this sanatorium was licensed under the Inebriates Act of 1878 for the, quote, treatment, physical, moral, and spiritual of women who have given way to intemperance by misuse of drugs or alcohol. Okay. Let me break it down. It was intended primarily for the upper and middle classes. It was rehab. Got it. Yeah. Those that resided in workhouses and penitentiary cases were not to be treated in the sanatorium. So 
it's really just for anybody in the above working classes, pretty Mm -hmm. much. This was Annie's self-admission, pretty much, into rehab, and she committed to a year of treatment and rehabilitation. She remained for the entire year and seemed to be on the road to sobriety and recovery. In December of 1883, she left the sanatorium and was able to maintain a sober lifestyle outside on her own. However, early the next year, John came down with a cold and used the old common cure-all of alcohol. He kept the alcohol away from Annie, but simply having it under her roof was too much temptation for her, and she eventually succumbed to her disease. Now, John's employer had been a huge support of Annie prior to this time, and he even supported her admission into the rehabilitation program. And it's most likely that he assisted getting her into the sanatorium. But now that she was back to her wandering around drunk, it was time for John to part ways in order to protect his career and his family's stability. At that point, she had to go because he still had to take care of a family. Right. He couldn't risk his good income and good job when he still had two children to support. Annie and John both decided a split was necessary and she went back to live with her mom. John would still be supporting her financially, but at her family home, she was not allowed to drink. Remember there, mm-hmm. teetotalers. Mm-hmm. The whole family, on account of what had happened with her father, abstained from alcohol because they really blamed his suicide on his alcoholism. Right. They had been instrumental in her getting to rehab previously and were now going to support her at their home. But Annie was an addict, and she abused those she loved if they prevented her from partaking in her habit. At this point, it isn't always a personal choice as the disease takes over. So she opted for living in lodging houses, where she wasn't under the constant observation of her family members. Mm. The family she made for herself were those she found in the pubs and drinking houses. This is where she met another man, a fellow alcoholic. It was not surprising that she ended up with a like-minded person because female alcoholics were viewed the same as prostitutes. Mm. This new man's name was Jack, and in 1884, this is when they seemed to make their migration to White Chapel, which was about 25 miles from where she was previously residing with her family. And it was here in Whitechapel that she officially left behind all of her status and life as Annie Smith or Annie Chapman. Mm-hmm. She now carried the surname of her new man, even though they were not legally married. No one really knew of where she had come from or what she had been through. She only had one close friend that she would confide in, but still with a very condensed version of what had previously happened. And then she met this friend, uh, Amelia, when she lived on Dorset Street. Now, Dorset Street was the straight slums. Mm -hmm. It was one of the worst streets or areas of Spitalfields and was basically viewed as a lost cause. Spitalfields is about a half mile or so from Whitechapel. A sad contribution to Annie and her husband, her new man's living circumstances was that they could actually afford to live elsewhere. He had a job, and Annie still got money weekly from John, but they spent their money on their addictions. So instead, they lived in filth and squalor because of their addiction. They lived like this until December of 1886, when those payments stopped from John. Why? John was sick. Oh. All of a sudden, struck with the reminder of her prior life, Annie made the trek back to her husband, walking the 25 miles home. What? Mind you, this was winter in England. Oh my god! And this lady hadn't been training for months to make this journey. She was an avid alcoholic. Oh yeah. And so and it's it took, the winter. Yes. It took her more than a day or two to cover this distance. And when she arrived, she looked awful. Um, just yeah. a hot mess. So would I. But she did arrive. <laughs> to see John prior to his passing, but she did not stay for him to pass. Mm. This was a hard part for me to wrap my head around. I don't know if she wanted to be there for him and then couldn't do so when she was faced with him looking old and frail at the age of 45. Mm -hmm. That's how old he was when he was dying. And somehow taking responsibility for his condition. Maybe she couldn't accept that. 
Or did she just come to confirm that he was sick? And that's why the payments had stopped. Oh, good, good you know? question. I don't know. Whatever the reason, she left and returned to her home at Dorset Street, which it seems like crazy. You're going to walk 25 miles and not stick around. Yeah, like you just were like popping in like, you doing? Not good? No, All right, well, not good. I got to mm-hmm. go. Okay. Yeah. So she went back to Dorset Street, but this wasn't going to be home for long. Her new man, Jack, now without the money to support his habit coming in from his woman's estranged husband, well, he left. Of course he did. <laughs> taking his own income with him. Yeah. Of course, we don't know the state that Annie was in at this time, and maybe Jack couldn't handle the fact that Annie was now mourning the loss of her actual husband, or maybe it was that she was no longer of any value to him because Mm -hmm. she didn't bring in that weekly allowance. I'm sure that was big reason why. Either way, Annie now was not just suffering from the years of alcoholism, but also appeared to have tuberculosis, which is a bacterial infection in the lungs and is an airborne illness. Given Annie's living situation, which would have allowed poor ventilation... This wouldn't have been an uncommon disease. Mm -hmm. As you may recall, this is what Polly's mom and her little brother died from. Mm -hmm. Annie continued to try to survive by any means she knew of. She took up with another man temporarily because at this time, remember, you can't survive without a man. However, the company she was surrounded with would not allow for a very stable or healthy relationship. According to her one good friend, Amelia, she would do crochet work and sell whatever she could at the market to make some money. Despite her being ill with tuberculosis in 1888, she joined the group of workers that would do seasonal hop picking and they would make that migration and go pick hops. It's a big harvesting time. Mm -hmm. And so people from the the east end of London, they would all go out there, do what they could. It was like an annual migration. They would do pick the hops, make some money, kind of party while they were out there and then head back. Right. Although Annie remained separate from her family, possibly on account of the shame she felt for her life choices and circumstances, she never stopped reaching out to them. She would write letters, drop in occasionally, and would meet up with her youngest brother who lived relatively close to her. Her family would still give her what they could to help her survive, including clothes and small amounts of money. They couldn't stand to see her suffer the way she was. I mean, this was their eldest sister, and mm-hmm. she was she was struggling. But Annie was still trucking along and surviving as she knew how, including menial labor and taking up with another man. In 1888, she had a regular relationship with a man named Ted. They would meet each week and spend the weekend at a lodging house on Dorset Street. The keeper of this lodging house knew their regular schedule and knew that they were exclusive to one another. Mm -hmm. Ted would pay for their weekend lodging and for Annie to remain through Tuesday mornings. The keeper had an agreement with Ted that he would not allow Annie to take up with any other man at his lodging house. That was his woman. Mm -hmm. As much as the keeper could control that, of course, his control would have been limited to the lodging house, which he worked in. This is a very close area, close knit area. Mm -hmm. And he was able to keep eyes on Annie through his peers at the other lodging houses at well. So if she had taken up with another man, he would have known about it. You will see many parallels between the women that I discussed. But as was with Polly, we know about her last movements because of her good friend, Ellen. Well, we now know of some of the last movements of Annie on account of her friend, Amelia. On a Tuesday afternoon, September 4th, after a regular weekend stay with Ted, Annie comes across her friend, Amelia. Annie looks very pale and ill and is walking slowly through the neighborhood. She tells Amelia she has to figure out a way to make some money for a room that night, but she complains that she's too sick to go to the market to try and sell any of her crochet work. Although she is kind of put out after Ted leaves and she's gone through her Tuesday morning, she doesn't show up on the roster of patients admitted to St. Bartholomew's that week, and she isn't on the roster of any of the local lodging houses either. So it is quite likely she spent the last few nights leading up to September 7th, 1888, sleeping rough. But on the night of September 7th, 1888, she went to the lodging house where she would regularly stay with Ted. She told the keeper that she did not have enough money, but that she was very sick and had just left the hospital. 
He allowed her to sit downstairs in the kitchen to keep warm. She left briefly to have a drink and found herself back in the kitchen at the lodging house where she was given some food. When everyone was cleared out of the lodging house that couldn't pay for their bed that night, Annie asked the keeper to please trust her to be good for the rest of the money that night and to let her have the bed she regularly has on the weekends. Mm -hmm. The keeper says no. And it is alleged that he stated, you can find money for your beer and you can't find money for your bed. That's true. And she says to him, keep my bed for me. I shan't be long. That night, she walked away from the lodging house on Dorset Street and left, maybe to ask her friend for help. Mm -hmm. Can you spot me a little money so I can Mm -hmm. have a bed for the night? Or maybe she left a sleep rough for the night since she wasn't feeling well enough to do much more than that. And she ended up on the morning of September 8th, 1888 at 29 Hanbury Street. This is a place that had rooms for rent, but its exterior doorways and the courtyard would provide overnight spaces for the homeless to find some free sleeping space for the night. By early that morning, her family had been notified of her death. Well, there you go, guys. Episode two of The Victims of Jack the Ripper. And if we haven't said it before, we're going to say it again. If you would like to go check out our Patreon and join our Patreon, all five of these episodes that we're doing, plus the whole Jack the Ripper case that we're going to conclude this all with, is available right now on Patreon. You can go get all of them. And also later this month, Cody's going to have a little extra bonus episode that goes along with this Jack the Ripper case. So you'll be getting a lot of Jack the Ripper. Go check it out. It's going to be awesome. Patreon, you can look up Over the Fence podcast, or you can go to our flow page and click on that and it'll bring you right to our patreon page there you go go check it out and if not we'll see you tomorrow same time same place whatever time you choose (laughs) 